Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Yuri Levine. Yuri is most famously the former president of Waze, a company he co-founded in 2007. In June of 2013, Google purchased Waze for more than $1.1 billion, just six years after its founding. In the decades since, Yuri has been an investor and a builder of startups and a teacher, as he likes to put it. He's the author of a new book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, a handbook for entrepreneurs, a topic he's well-equipped to address as a former entrepreneur and now an advisor to so many of them. Yuri, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, Yuri, uh, first of all, congratulations on your terrific book, which uh, just came out a, a few months ago. Um, you've said that your inspiration for writing it was not only to share your experience, but also because you do have a calling to be a teacher of sorts. I wonder if you could uh, offer some some reflections on that, this next phase of, of your giving back to that community. So, you know, it's kind of rare, right? You don't meet a lot of people that are entrepreneurs on one hand and teacher on the other hand by nature. And I realized or I thought about it that maybe this is uh, because the home that I grew up at and my mom was a teacher and my dad was an entrepreneur and I ended up to be a little bit of both or maybe a lot of both. Um, and so when you have the personality of a teacher, then then what really happens is that you feel equally rewarded if you build stuff yourself or you actually guide someone to build it. And, and this is exactly the case for me. So... So after the Waze acquisition, I left and uh, and I am guiding and mentoring and coaching other CEOs um, and of 10 different startups. And uh, and I feel equally rewarded doing that uh, compared to building my stuff myself. Obviously, the book is the, the, you know, the ultimate fulfillment of my destiny as a teacher. Well, it, it certainly makes makes sense. And I appreciate that overview. You mentioned the 10 companies you've become affiliated with. What are some of the common denominators among those? What drew you to them and them to you? So they all have common denominators, two common denominators, right? One is they um, doing good and doing well, right? So all of them are about to um, create value to the world. And obviously, if they are successful in creating a lot of value, then there will be a reward of that. And the second part is that, uh, and this is for me, the simplest way to create value is solve a problem. So each one of them, when they started, they had a very clear problem that they would like to solve. And in many cases, you know, the problem reshape itself or uh, or you figure out that uh, it might be a different appearance of the problem and you ended up with doing something slightly different. Um, and, uh, and so this is the common denominator of all of them. And uh, for me on a personal level, you know, I would engage in a place that uh, um, uh, actually have uh, um, probably three uh, uh, key issues for me. One is that uh, I want to, right? So the the mission is right, and and uh, second one is that I believe I can add value, and it's not always the case, right? If I have no clue in this market, then maybe I cannot add value. And the third one is that they want me to add value, right? And this combination is uh, is mandatory for me in order to actually create value because uh, creating value is uh, my ultimate goal. That's a great overview. Uh, it make, makes sense. Uh, in addition to the necessity, to, as your book would suggest, uh, to fall in love with the problem, not the solution, you've also written about the importance of uh, the disruption is not about technology, it's about changing behavior. Can you talk a bit about um, that thesis, please? Sure. So, so, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, this is a disruptive technology. And for a second, I would say, wait a minute, technology by itself does not disrupt, right? 
disruption is about changing behavior. And if you look at it from an economical point of view, disruption is change in market equilibrium. Um, and, and there are a few elements to that. Number one is that when you think about disruption, disruption can happen because of a new product that is being introduced to the market. Maybe it's a new price. So just think of Gmail, for example, right? Gmail is 17 years old. Before that, we actually used to pay money in order to have a mailbox. And then Google introduced Gmail and through multiple iterations, it became good enough until um, it, you know, free and good enough wins the market. No one can compete with that, right? Maybe it's a new business model that is being introduced. So just think of uh, all the scooters that we are seeing now in all the major cities in the world. This is a new business model. The scooter was there for a long time before, but it's simply a new business model. And maybe it's a new information that changed either the supply or the demand. And as a result, changed the market equilibrium. And so for me, that will be, you know, the essence of disruption. Now, which if you think about it, you look at it from, from other perspective, then you would realize that disruptors are always newcomers. They are the ones that have nothing to lose. Because existing businesses do not disrupt their own business. A great and important conclusion. Well, let, let's apply some of those same ideas back to Waze and its founding, if you would. First of all, was, what was the problem that you fell in love with? And likewise, um, how would you describe the, the the behavior you changed? We started with the same mission that we ended up with, even though that it's actually changed over the years in terms of the value that we bring. When we started, we wanted to help drivers to avoid traffic jams, and so we we figure out that you know if we'll tell you that you know what this route is going to take you an hour and this one is going to be forty five minutes, then obviously for you you are just avoiding traffic jams and taking a a shorter in time route, uh, which is going to save you time. And therefore we thought that uh, saving time is going to be the most significant value. Over the years, we have realized that people, what they care the most about is actually the certainty. So they will keep on driving the same route, but they know exactly how long it's gonna take them. And that result, the certainty, has way higher value, certainty versus uncertainty, way higher value than saving time uh, every day. That's really, really interesting. And I wonder, as I mentioned in the introduction, in the grand scheme of things, the time from founding to selling the company was short, uh, a bit more than six years. Um, but I can only imagine, especially in the early days, the number of pivots that you needed to, to uh, make. You just even mentioned uh, some of the new conclusions you drew based upon uh, the interaction of, of the solution you were developing and the users of it. Um, talk a bit about that, that evolution, if you would, just across those six years. So let me start with a general statement. If I would define the journey of startup, then I would say there are three dimensions to that. Uh, it's it's a roller coaster journey, so right, with ups and downs and ups and downs. And if you'll tell me that all the all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, and in particular in the last uh, three years we are seeing a lot of those, um, I would say yes, I agree. But in a startup, the frequency of those ups and downs are way higher. I think that I owe the best quote to Ben Horvitz uh, from a recent Horvitz uh, venture capital firm. And before that, he used to be a CEO of a startup, and he was asked whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO of a startup. And he said, oh, yeah, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. And that's really <laughs> the reality of that, right? And so it's a roller coaster journey. It's a journey of failures. Because, you know, you would like to think that you know exactly what you're doing, but you're actually trying to do something new that no one did before. So you don't. So you try. 
You try one thing and it doesn't work. You try another thing and it doesn't work. You keep on trying different things until you find one thing that does work. And and when you do, you actually buy yourself a ticket to the next part of the journey. And if the first part of the journey is going to be around product market fit, then the rest will be about figuring out business model or growth and so forth. We will get to that in a second. Once you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then I would say that there are two immediate conclusions. The first one is that if you're afraid to fail, then in reality, you already failed because you're not going to try. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed, that's because you haven't tried new things. If you're going to try new things, you will fail. As simple as that. The other part is that the most important thing is to fail fast. Because the faster that you fail, you actually buy yourself enough time to make another attempt and another version and another approach, right? So you have limited funding or limited run rate. And in this run rate, you need to, to figure out major parts of your journey. And the more, the faster that you fail, you actually have more time to figure that out. And the last element, it's a long, it's a long journey. And the longest part of it is to figure out product market fit. To a certain extent, and product market fit means that you create value to your users. To a certain extent, I would say, if you don't figure out product market fit, you will die, as simple as that. In fact, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit. They simply died. That's it. But if you think about what happened after they did figure out product market fit, then I want you to think of uh, all the applications that you are using every day, right? Driving with ways, using Uber, searching Google, using Netflix, whatever it is, Instagram, whatever it is, and ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those that you are using today and the first time that you have used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We're using Waze today the same way or WhatsApp or Uber or whatever it is, exactly the same way that we did for the first time in our life. So once you figure out product market fit, you don't change that anymore. The journey to get there is a long journey. It was more than four years for Waze. Only in 2011, we, we did figure out product market fit. And then we started to see that the growth, the significant growth. It was five years for Microsoft. It was 10 years for Netflix. It was, you know, even if we speak about ChatGPT and you will tell me, wait a minute, ChatGPT is only since January and we are two months um, already figure out product market fit. Then I would say, wait a minute. Number one, they haven't figured out product market fit yet. And number two, Today was announced ChatGPT version 4.0, or yesterday, right? The previous version was uh, 3.5. It was seven years to get there. So it's a long journey to get to product market fit, and only then you start to become significant, and only then disruption might happen. In the case of Waze, the disruption was actually pretty dramatic, right? In, I just say that we figure out product market fit in, in 2011, 2012, Waze was growing faster than the entire industry combined. So you take all navigation apps and all navigation devices and all in-car navigation system, and Waze outgrew all of them combined. Now, this is the most interesting part of disruption. If we define disruption as change in market equilibrium, then by definition, the new market is way better than the previous market. 
If you think of the number of people that are using navigation apps today, this is everyone. And so if you think of people that are using on-demand trips like Uber, just imagine today there are 10 times more on-demand trips than there were before Uber. In this 10 times bigger market, there is room for Uber and Lyft and Grab and 99 Taxi. And there is three times bigger room for taxi drivers. So in general, we would say if you think of disruption, then the opportunity is way better than the threat. And still, most of the corporates will be fearing of, of disruption. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I was fascinated to learn uh, in reading your book, uh, the competition between Waze and Google. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, Google would eventually acquire Waze, but they 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 had then and have now, by the way, also uh, Google Maps, so their own navigation. Uh, and, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about the competition between the companies. And I was also, as a, as a corollary to that, fascinated to, to learn more about the role Microsoft played in helping you along the way as well. Maybe you can tell, talk a bit about that story. So, so look, at the end of the day, if you, if you are asking people today, what are you using when you're driving, then people will tell you either Waze or Google Maps, and that's it, right? So if you have Tesla, you cannot even use Waze, then you're definitely using uh, Google Maps. But, but at the end of the day, what happened is that prior to Waze, navigation apps and navigation devices cost money. And Waze was the first one to offer a turn-by-turn, -turn, free turn-by-turn -turn navigation. And Google followed that um, in 2010, or two, I think it was 2010. And so at the end of the day, you ended up with only two applications that are free. And free and good enough wins the market. No one can compete with that, right? And so we ended up with, uh, um, you know, the market is now owned by by two applications and in uh, one owner, one owner, right? And uh, um, but there is a major difference between them, right? Because if I would, the purpose of the applications were different ways. Was aiming at helping the drivers on their daily commute, and we ended up doing that very well. And Google was a purpose. The original purpose was to help people to get to a destination that they don't know even where it is. And so the search was the drive in their case. Now today, if you would ask people, how often do you use Waze? They will tell you every day, every time that I get into the car. If you would ask people that are using Google Maps, how often do you use that? They will tell you when I need it. And so the use case is different and therefore the applications is aimed to be different and the results are different. Now, whether or not people will switch from one to another, people don't like to switch. It doesn't make any difference from what, right? So, so and this is why good enough is unbeatable because there is no incentive to switch away from something that is good enough, right? Most people will say, why should I even bother? Right? I have something that is good enough for me and good enough wins. And uh, um, so this is, uh, um, you know, answering that question. Um, Microsoft um, was an investor at Waze at the B round. And um, we had a lot of um, combined dreams of doing something together. But we actually didn't. And 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 why was that? Just uh, did did it boil down to differences in vision, or or how did that happen? You know, for a second, I would say most of the ideas uh, are not getting implemented, right? And so they had their own ideas. We had our own ideas. 
Hmm. Um, they uh, didn't know how to pull that up. We didn't know how to pull that up. And so we ended up with uh, doing nothing. I see. Uh, Yuri, as an investor, you focus less on uh, on industry expertise and more on problem solvers. Uh, talk a bit about that uh, and why it's important. And in some cases, actually even a hindrance, uh, um, uh, industry expertise can be a hindrance of sorts. You know, for me, the journey always starts with the problem. Find a problem, a big problem, something that's worth solving, something that the world will become a better place if you solve that. And then ask yourself, so who has this problem? Now, if you happen to be the only person on the planet with this problem, then I would say, you know what, go to a shrink. It's way cheaper and faster than building a startup. But if a lot of people actually have this problem, what you really want to do next is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of the problem. And only then go and build the solution. Now, if you follow this path and your solution works, it's guaranteed that you're creating value. And at the end of the day, the entire journey is about value creation. Now, what happened is that when you speak with people and they echo back the problem to you, they tell you their version of the problem, what you really feel is that they're sending you on a mission to solve that problem for them. And this is where you fall in love with the problem. If you're in love with the problem, then the problem serves two purposes. The first one is that it's a North Star of your journey. And when you have a North Star, you're going to make less deviations from that. The second one is that the story that you tell is way more compelling, right? If I will be here in 2007 and I will tell you I'm going to build an AI crowdsource-based navigation system, then you're going to tell me, oh, very interesting, but you don't care. If I will tell you I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, then you do care. And this is the power of the story that ends up to be way more compelling and engaging with users, with customers, with employees, with the media, with investors, with everyone. And therefore, fall in love with the problem, not the solution, and simply increase your likelihood of being successful. And it's easier to follow because the problem is the beacon, is the North Star of your pro of your journey. Hmm. Yeah, it's a great, great uh, way of typifying that. You also have been a co-founder of a business. You invest in co-founders. What have you found to be the optimal char characteristics of co-founders? If, if you look back, then I would say um, the most important behavior of, of founders, of entrepreneurs will be never give up. And if you want that in the Winston Churchill uh, approach, then he was asked, uh, uh, you know, what, what will make England win in the war in 10 worlds? You say, this is easy. Never, 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 never give up. Right, as simple as that. And uh, so this is the most important behavior. The second one is actually making decision with conviction. Um, and then I would add to that maybe a couple of other uh, behaviors that dramatically increase the likelihood of being successful, listening to users, um, leadership, um, and so leadership, what I really mean is that um, people would like to follow you. Not that they have to, that they would like to. Um, and, and if you combine all those, then you're actually becoming um, increased dramatically the likelihood of being successful. Uh, for a second, I would say the fourth or the last element will be bring experience. Bring experience in building startups, bring experience in the different phases of uh, um, of the of the journey. Right? Earlier, you mentioned that I'm not interested in specific. Um, Warren Buffett said, "Don't invest in something that you don't understand." 
And obviously I'm not industry specific, but the real question should be, what is it that I do understand? And, and I would say two things, right? I understand users and I understand how to build startups. And, and with those, um, whether or not it, this is in fintech or in mobility or in travel tech, doesn't make any difference. You also noted, Yuri, that it's uh, that firing people is more important than hiring them, the process. Uh, talk a bit about the insight there. So I spoke with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed and I asked them why, what happened? And they told me, you know, about half say the team was not right. And I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? Most of the, or the main reason that I heard was, you know, we had this guy not good enough and this guy. So not good enough was main reason that I heard. And that reason that I heard quite often was uh, we had uh, communication issues, right? Something that I actually called the uh, ego management issues. And then ask them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? Now, the scary answer was that all of them said within the first month. Then you say, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making easy decisions is easy. Making hard decisions is hard. Now, the, the challenge is even greater or amplified because if there is someone that shouldn't be there, startup is a small team, maybe 10, 20, 30 people. There is someone that shouldn't be there. Everyone knows. Everyone knows and the CEO doesn't do anything. This is the nature of the beast. Now, the result, by the way, is always going to be the same. The top performing people would leave. They would leave because they don't want to be in a place that is unable to make hard decisions and they would leave because they have a choice. If you keep people that shouldn't be there and the top performing people are about to leave, this is the beginning of the end. You will not be successful. Now, when I took that into the firing and hiring chapter, then the, the most interesting part is that when I sent the book proposal to multiple um, publishers, they told me it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no, no, no. Firing is hard decision. Hiring is easy decisions. Therefore, you need to learn to fire before you can hire. And one of the most important uh, um, insights from this chapter is that if you're a hiring manager, if you hire a new candidate, mark your calendar for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is no, then fire them immediately. They are already on a trajectory of not being successful. And you can prevent that by simply firing them. If the answer is yes, then go ahead and tell them that you are actually, they are exceeding your expectations and you are very pleased with the fact that they have joined the team. And if you can do any, you know, increase their option pool or their equity position, that will be awesome time to do that. By the way, in many cases, uh, these 30 days are going to happen before the board approval of the equity plan for that particular individual. So you can do that even without going back to the board. That's, that's really interesting and fascinating. And, and as, as you note, sort of cuts against the grain of what we're used to, which makes that all the more compelling in many ways. Um, you've written uh, about three main categories of users, uh, innovators, early adopters, and, and the early majority um, who do you keep in mind as you as you've developed startups and as you've advised others to do the same? 
so so this is very challenging right and and for a second i will define the different users and and look there is a, a chapter that call sample of one right because at the end of the day we tend to think of ourselves as a, um, as an example of the users and we are absolutely amazing sample of one person in particular in the way that we can adapt new things right new whatever right and, and for a second, I would say the ability to adopt something new is separate into maybe five of six, of six different groups. The most important one are, the, as you mentioned, the innovators, um, the early adopters, and the early majority. And, uh, and the difference between them is very simple. If you are an innovator, you are going to use something new because it's new. You are the enthusiastic amateur that care the most about something new. If you're innovators, as soon as you will hear about that and understand that there might be a use case for you or there is a value for you, then you will try that. If you are early majority, which is really the target audience of your, of your offering, the biggest challenge is that you are afraid of change and you are not going to use something new because you are afraid of change. And you will need someone to walk you by the hand and show you how to use that before you will be able to make that leap of faith. Now, the challenge is if you belong to one of those groups, you cannot even imagine that there are other people that are not like you. And so when you build a product, your biggest issue is that you are building the product for you and not for the target market. And the only way for you to understand that there are other users that are not like you is watch them. And then ask them why. So you will see that they have different behavior than you, and you will need to ask them why, why you are doing it this way, and they will tell you. And this is the key for you to understand other users. Now, if you don't do it this way, you will end up with building a product that is not going to make the leap of faith and move from the early adopters into the, the early majority group. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I, I wanted to also ask you, uh, as somebody who started a company in Israel, somebody who lives in Israel and has invested in so many others uh, in that country as well, your country, uh, talk a bit about how Israel has become such a hotbed for startups. What, what, what is it about the culture there uh, that is conducive to it? You know, I would say that for for any ecosystem, for any startups or entrepreneurship ecosystem in the world, there need to be um, four cornerstones in order to be successful. And Israel actually have five, uh, one unique. Um, and so the four cornerstones are simple, right? Entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs, we need to have a culture of low fear of failure. Because if you have high fear of failure... People are afraid to fail, and therefore they're afraid to try something new. And the result is that we have way less people that are willing to make that uh, leap of faith and, and do and build something from scratch. Uh, the second part is, is investors. right? And uh, in general, you need investors. And in order to bring investors, a country or an ecosystem needs to make sure that the regulation make it easy for investors and no liabilities and no taxation and reduce all barriers that might be uh, in order to do that, right? So for example, if uh, if I invest in a startup in Brazil and this startup turns out to be successful, then I actually need to pay taxes in Brazil. And I don't want to pay taxes in Brazil and therefore I am not investing there. Um, and if it's the other way around, then you don't pay taxes when you invest in a startup in Israel. So this is the second cornerstone. The third one will be engineers. 
or, or I would say professionals, right? If you are trying to figure out something in the in the biotech, then you need to have bio- biologists. But if you're trying to do something in the um, in the technology space, then obviously you need to have a lot of engineers. Uh, and the fourth element will be experience, because um, the experience adds so much into the ability to um, uh, make less mistakes, and as a result, increase the likelihood of being successful. And to a certain extent, uh, my book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, is about trying to share that experience with as many entrepreneurs as possible um, in order to increase their likelihood of being successful. Now, the Israeli uniqueness is actually the military service. Um, Israel is in a tough neighborhood, and therefore, um, you know, I would say if you if you grew up in a tough neighborhood, then you grew up tough. That's it. Unfortunately, we have mandatory military service, which actually serves well the entire population in terms of maturity, right? So you go at the age of 18 and doing two, three years of military service and you mature faster. You realize many things that will serve you later in your entire life, right? So for example, uh, giving up is not an option. And uh, and this is pretty significant, right? Working in teams, leadership, um, finding solutions to many challenges, overcoming challenges, they're all skills or or for a second i would say even soft skills that you will learn by doing at the age of 18 and you will end up with actually having them throughout the entire journey one of the derivatives loyalty if i will start now a new startup in israel and i would hire 100 engineers a year from now i will still have 97 of them if i will do the same in the silicon valley if i will still keep 70 of them i'm lucky very interesting uh, description of that. I pre- appreciate you share, sharing the uh, the four cornerstones and the unique fit, as you as you point out. Um, you also write about the need to think globally as an entrepreneur, and uh, you know the, many many entrepreneurs will will think about their immediate surroundings. Naturally, they're they're building something for for those they know best. Talk a bit about that perspective, and again, how it's applied to, to your own experiences. So, you know, it's it's a chapter in my book that speaks about going global, right? And I wrote this chapter and then I erased that. And then I wrote it again and erased that again. And the reason is that it's not always needed. Israel is a small place. If you start in Israel, it's a small market. You don't care about the market here. It's simply too small. And therefore, you would need to think global from the day one. Now, when you think global from the day one, you would realize that, wait a minute, the world is not just the US or China. It's actually multiple places. Now, if I would be starting ways in San Francisco or in Boston, then my immediate surrounding would be Silicon Valley or 128 route or whatever in between. And later on, I will look at the American market and try to grow my business there until I become significant enough. And only then I would start to think about global. And it might be challenging then to go global, maybe because I have competition. But for a second, I would say, wait a minute, if you're really successful in the U.S., you probably can raise a lot of money in order to acquire other companies in other markets. And and I think that uh, Groupon was the first one to actually implement that approach by by expanding their global uh, global strategy through acquisitions and uh, but if you start in a small market then you need to think global from the first day and then immediately everyone would say okay we are trying something in israel or in sweden or in estonia Um, and then if it works then we go directly to the us and i would say wait a minute 
the world is a bigger place than that, right? And uh, I would recommend that you go to a place that it's significant enough on one hand and really easy to win on the other hand. And easy to mean to win might mean that there is no competition there, right? And then it's easier, right? Or user acquisition is really inexpensive, then it's easier. Or that you can actually have nationwide PR and it works well. Uh, whereas you know the, the 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 PR in the in the US or the media in the US by and large is local. And so you end up with uh, realizing that wait a minute, they might be other markets and and some of the perspectives is that we are usually under underestimating the other markets right so so people don't think of indonesia as a country with 280 million people right or brazil with 220 million people right or india with 1.4 billion or and then you'll figure out that wait a minute there are actually more than 20 countries with more than 100 million people right they might be irrelevant for me there are more smartphones in india than there are in the us and, and so thinking global basically means, first of all, understand the global market and, and realize where it's that going to be relevant for you. And then you need to make the decision when. Now, if you would start in a large country, most likely you will focus the, the first five years on that particular country. If you start in a small place, then you would start in your own backyard and then immediately you will try to move to a, to a major market. Uh, profound profound uh, insights there, to say the least. I wanted to also ask you, Yuri, uh, as you look to the future, what are you most excited about? As you mentioned, there's a variety of different companies you've invested in, um, a, a variety of different problems you're excited to help entrepreneurs solve. What has you particularly excited as you're looking to the future right now? The next one. <laughs> I'm a future-looking person, right? So at the end of the day, you know, I'm an avid skier and I like to ski a lot. And someone asked me, where is the best ski vacation? And I say, the next one. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's always about uh, um, what the future is going to bring us. Uh, I also did this, the following experiment with uh, many people. I said, uh, assume there is a time machine and that you you actually have, you know, one one token to use. Where would you go? And I found out that most people will go someplace in the past to correct something. And I would like to go to the future because this, there is something that I don't know, right? And so I live well with the uncertainty and I like it the most. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's always about the next one. Now, if you will ask me which one of my companies is going to become successful, then many of them, which one of them is going to become unicorns, um, at least two that I can name today that will become unicorns, um, and that will be, you know, I already had to, um, so ways and move it and, uh, and the more the merrier. Um, and, uh, and still I'm mostly excited about the future that is going to bring us more opportunities. And if you'll tell me that there are more problems today in the world, then I would say, wait a minute, you just say that there are more opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, as I hear you talk I'm, I, and, and throughout our conversation, I, I can uh, diagnose some of the reasons why you've been a successful entrepreneur and investor. Uh, you know, the fact that you are future forward, that you you try to live in the future as opposed to uh, uh, dwelling on the past, that you have parents who are a combination of entrepreneur and teacher and imbued you with the characteristics of each that have served you well, that you, you know, embody and personify the four cornerstones and the unique fifth of Israelis 
as you point out as well. Are there any other secrets to your success that you would uh, you would highlight things that you took advantage of that helped you along the way that that, that we've not spoken about already? So so I think that um, you know these are the secrets, right? So start with the problem, listening to users, make hard decision with conviction, fail fast. If you follow those, and then you realize that building a startup is a long journey, a very long journey, because uh, for a second, I would say, let's just imagine the top tech companies of the world, right? Those that are less than 30 years old. So, so Google and Amazon and Netflix and that are 20 something years old or, or Facebook and Tesla that are less than 20 or even younger companies like uh, Shopify or Airbnb. And we ask ourselves the following questions. How much of their value market cap was created in the first decade of their existence versus rest of the time? The rest of the time might be 17 years old for Google or, or Amazon. It might be seven years for Facebook and Tesla. and might be three years for, uh, for Shopify and so forth. And the answer is scary. Only 10% was created in the first decade. Most of the value was created afterwards because what really happened on the first decade is that the company was trying to figure out product market fit. And once they did that, they went and tried to figure out growth. And once they did that, they went and tried to figure out their business model. And only then they were on a path of taking off, right? This journey was 10 years for most of the cases. And so once you realize that this is going to be a long journey on one hand, and you will need to operate in phases, then you actually have a path for the next decade of what is it that you need to do. Now, the most important part, figure out product market fit. If you don't, you will die. Well, Yuri Levine, thank you so much for spending time with me today. What, what interesting insights you've shared from your book and from your remarkable career as well. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I appreciate that.